All right, everyone, welcome to What No One Told Us with Jake and Cole. Um, basically, the genesis for this podcast is uh, Cole and I, we met in college. We, we, we thought we knew what we wanted to do, or we did know what we wanted to do. However, once we got into the workforce, that perception kind of changed. It felt like there was a lot of things that we didn't realize about specific jobs and the careers that we went into. Um, and I really wish there was something out there that basically was real, real life experiences from actual professionals in their careers. Because the guidance counselor I had in high school was garbage. <laughs> so I didn't have a guidance counselor. So you have a leg well, up see, on me. <laughs> see, there you go. Um, and so I think this podcast could definitely help a lot of you know young professionals, high school students going into college, um, and then ultimately anyone who's looking to change a career. If we can actually get you know people on this podcast. Uh, sponsors maybe one day, you know, Joe Rogan signed one million, a hundred million dollar deal with Spotify. There's a bright future ahead, Cole. Yeah, we're going straight to the top. <laughs> we're dethroning Joe Rogan in a couple weeks is our goal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we want to interview real life professionals um, in every career so that users and listeners would be able to um, hear the real life stories uh, basically from individuals. Cole, you got anything? Yeah. Yeah. I think that sounds good. I, I think something that that was missing, um, from the external resources, as I mentioned, I didn't, I didn't have a guidance counselor or really any help in high school. Uh, I had my family around me and then I had the internet where I could search and I had a few other people I could talk to about careers, but I felt like, uh, the information I found was very generic. I, I'm a mechanical engineer and so I could look up uh, different career paths for mechanical engineers, but they weren't very specific because it's a very broad field to begin with. Um, I, I struggled to find specific data. And so what I hope for this podcast is that we can offer just one person's perspective. As as our guests come on, this is what they do. Um, Jake and I will both share what we do. And I think that will lead to a little bit more specific data that, that could guide your career in, in a little bit better way because it's not just oh this is what i could be doing you can kind of set a goal and and work towards it yeah i think that's i think that's definitely a good way to put it specific data for each career um job specific profession wise um i mean i don't know do you want to go first tell them what you do or do you want me to start out telling what i do i think we should talk a little bit about uh about how we met and where we went to school and stuff. And so I'll, okay. I, I can tell I my story yeah, to get to college. Um, so I grew up in Arizona, a pretty small town called Sholo. Um, and I went, went to high school there. As I said, it wasn't a great, it wasn't a great education. Arizona's ranked pretty low <laughs> on the, uh, on the old education scale. And, and so <laughs> I was, I was blessed with some pretty smart parents that, that helped me through. And uh, my dad's a civil engineer, and so I, I had engineering in mind. And I was a little bit more mechanically inclined than my dad and had a little bit less desire to do civil engineering. And so I decided to do mechanical engineering and was looking for 
um, a, a Christian school that offered engineering and stumbled upon Laterno University and ended up going there in 27, no, 2016, I think, is the our freshman year. 2015. Uh, uh, 2015. <laughs> like I said, uh, I headed to school in 2015 um, for mechanical engineering, and that's what I got. I ended up getting a degree in. I met Jake second day of school, first day of school, something like that. Uh, we we did a lot of chemistry homework together and became pretty good friends after that. And yeah, I think we we both had a had a passion to excel in our careers. Both had been worked a little bit more than most of our high school peers. Um, our dads both valued hard work, and so they they taught us taught us how to work hard. And so uh, that drew us together, and we we both kind of shared this yeah. this passion for for wanting to do well, and then we also shared a a common vision maybe of, of seeing some of our peers that just had no idea what they were getting into. They were like, Oh, I'm I'm becoming an engineer because that's what my, my parents told me to do, or I thought it was a good idea or I was good at math. And so a teacher said I should become an engineer and they really had no idea what they were getting into. Or the growth rate was really good according to statistics. Yeah. Yeah. Those people probably should be engineers because they're very large nerds, but, um, (laughs) Yeah, and so I think we we realized that a lot of people didn't know what they were going to do. We saw a lot of people default into grad school because they were scared to enter yeah. the real world. Saw a lot of people that, uh, and this is a little bit of a separate issue. But we saw a lot of people that struggled to work. They struggled to uh, put in a full eight-hour day, and that was just different than how we were raised. And uh, a little bit shocking to both of us because we were like, "What were you expecting?" <laughs> you know, college was was great, but but weren't you expecting to to work afterwards? And I think a lot of people right. were kind of like, no, I was expecting to have fun in college. <laughs> and uh, and so I think that's probably where uh, the heart for this podcast started is in college, seeing our peers and experience a little bit of experiencing a little bit of doubt ourselves, just not knowing exactly where we wanted to go and then both being a little surprised at what we found in in our careers. No, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's definitely true. Um, I guess my side, I in high school, always did really well in high school. It was really good, math and science. Um, uh, there was a guy who came, spoke at our high school, who was a biomedical engineer. Um, and what he did sounded very interesting. He did medical device design on pacemakers and defibrillators, and I thought, you know, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. I want to, I want to be able to do that. Um, and so, you know, I talked to, um, the actual superintendent of our school. He recommended Laterno University as a great engineering school. Um, and that's also where my brother went to school and he, he really enjoyed it. He felt like he was getting a, a good education. Um, and they had a biomed program. So I decided to go. Um, once I got there, we, I met Cole the second day, apparently I don't really remember that though. Um, and then, yeah, Cole and I, we did, I think we had several first year classes and second year classes together, basically. Our first, our um, first semester, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we had all three classes. We had math, uh, chemistry and Bible, I think play ping pong after lunch. Uh, yeah. 
And then we would go to science seminar every oh. Tuesday thir- or Thursday oh. or something like that. Oh, gosh. Don't remind me. That was extra credit. That's yeah. how we got through chemistry. <laughs> and physics. <laughs> yep. And um, physics. Yeah. And so we, we became roommates. And that's when, yeah, we our, our values and our goals were very similar. We, excuse me, we went into college. We knew what we wanted to do, um, or at least we thought we knew what we wanted to do. And my experience through college, I found out, well, there's this isn't exactly what I was picturing in my mind. Um, and that kind of happened in various different stages. I had a co-op while I was in college where I actually did some medical device design, and I realized that is not what I wanted to do. And I wish someone maybe would have told me that sooner than when I was in my junior year of college uh, almost about to graduate. And so I think that's kind of where the heart of this podcast starts for me is I found out kind of later in my college experience through my own experience that, well, there's a lot of biomed engineering that I don't really want to do. Um, and by that time you're already spending, you know, 60, 80,000 on college. that's that's a big mistake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a yeah. huge mistake, and so many and, people make it. Yeah, and like you were saying, we we witnessed several students who would go through you know three years of engineering and then switch majors, or switch majors two years in, or get out of college and then can't find a job in what they majored in and end up doing something else, or like you said, defaulting in the grad school because they couldn't find a job right away. And so I mm-hmm. think that's really yeah, where this podcast, I guess, originated with me is I wanted to I basically help other high school students, college students, and ultimately anyone who's deciding to transfer jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's a, I think it's kind of, in a way, been a long time coming. We didn't really have the idea to do a podcast um, until the, the quarantine season hit with, with COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, spring 2020, but I think uh, that was just kind of an outlet to something that we've both been been talking about. We spent hours talking about how do people not know what they want to do, and then more recently, I I started my job in January, um, and so I've I've been only working a few months, but I've already realized like oh, there's some things that I I didn't anticipate that I think somebody could have told me pretty quickly. Um, I think that's similar to to you, Jake, in your co-op. In in two days, you knew that designing medical devices wasn't for you because of how tedious and just uh, how much screen time it was. And somebody that does that knows it requires uh, uh, more tedious work and also a lot of screen time. And they could have told you that. Like, this job isn't for people that want to get up and move around. It's for people that enjoy working on a computer all day. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So who wants to talk about their career first? You want, you want me to go or you want to go? I, I'll, uh, I'll go. I'll jump into it. Uh, so for everyone listening, hopefully, uh, <laughs> I am a biomedical engineer for the uh, Department of Veteran Affairs. Um, and that position looks like uh, it's hard to describe. So... Well, actually, it's not. I would break it down into two kind of categories. I would say there's a project management category, and then there is a 
maintenance, repair, uh, documentation category is how I would split up my job. So project management category, the biomed engineers help with medical device uh, procurement, installation, um, infrastructure planning, security planning, everything it takes to get a device in the hospital. Uh, for example, one of the projects I've been working on is a bladder scanner replacement project. And that's because our bladder scanners are at the end of their life cycle. Biomed is in charge of life cycle planning for medical equipment. So we, we see these devices, they're end of life cycle, we need them to be replaced. Uh, so we basically bring in a whole bunch of vendors, let them show what's on the market. We get information from our nursing staff, our clinical users, me as a biomed engineer, biomed techs, you know, what, how do we, how is this piece of equipment going to be best for our clinical staff and then best for our biomed techs to take care of this piece of equipment? And then once we do that, you know, we write up a contracting package and then that contracting package will get submitted out for solicitation. Anyone can bid on it who meets the statement of work written up in that contracting package. Um, and then once it's out for bid, it's basically contracting determines lowest uh, cost and technically acceptable. If they are technically acceptable, according to the statement of work you have written, then whoever is the lowest cost is going to win that award. Is there um, any um, exceptions for, for veterans or anything else? Uh, I've, I've heard of that, stuff like that at the VA before. Cole, that is a great question. <laughs> Um, so the, the federal government uh, and the Department of Veteran Affairs have special procurement options um, and kind of metrics that they meet in trying to help what they call SDVOSBs, Service Disabled Veteran Owned Small Businesses. Um, and then also, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then there's also VOSDBs, which is Veteran Owned Service Small Business, I think. And then there's okay. women-owned veteran small business. And so there's a bunch of these letter a lot acronyms. Of small that they, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of small alphabet soup. <laughs> alphabet soup acronyms they throw at you. And if if you send something out for solicitation, and there are, I believe it's three veteran-owned small businesses bid on it and say they can meet the requirements, then that uh, solicitation will be set aside for a veteran-owned small business. That means it can't go to the OEM, original equipment manufacturer, or anything like that. It has to go through a veteran-owned small business. And the problem with that is all the OEMs have the original equipment manufacturers have their own veteran-owned small business that they go through. So they're mm -hmm. kind of like a middleman taking a percentage of the cut, if you know what I mean. And well, percentage. No, I, I know well, what you're saying. <laughs> and I'm not going to say that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what's happening. <laughs> um, yeah, you're, you're saying there's OEMs that are that are just saying straight to a small-owned business, uh, veteran-owned small business, hey, you should sell our product to the VA, take a little cut. We know it's going to meet the technical requirements and the veterans being able to do that. Yeah, they. I mean, they essentially act as a middleman for the OEMs. It goes, 
the OEM provides them the equipment and then we buy it through this veteran owned small business. And then, you know, it happens that way. Um, mm-hmm. and that, but, but then that generates problems through a different area. So like buying equipment, it's not really that big of a deal because it's the equipment we want. We don't care who it comes from, except there it's going to be a little higher price because there's a middleman mm-hmm. for service contracts it kind of does present a uh, problem in my opinion, because you could have a, um, a piece of radiation equipment that treats cancer that has proprietary software on it. And all these very high metrics that if it's not calibrated just right can cause damage. Um, or like if it goes down and the service disabled veteran owned small business can't have the same uptime guarantee that the OEM has, then um, there's patients whose cancer treatment isn't being, isn't happening regularly, essentially. Um, and so that's kind of something we are battling with contracting uh, as biomed, we're the technical experts on the equipment. And we're saying, hey, these guys can't meet these metrics. And contracting's like, well, we have to meet our quota. And so there's kind of this you know, confrontation line that happens. Yeah, back, um, back and forth that. You want to help veterans out, which I think is awesome, but also you need to make right. sure that the veterans in the hospital are getting the best care they can they can receive, and so and that, that is that's a balancing act. Exactly, that's exactly the point. We want to help veteran-owned small businesses, but then we also want to provide the best service to the veterans that are in the hospital. Um, and I and it, it is a balancing act on that specific uh, uh, problem, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's like. I guess, uh, project management. So we're doing bladder scanners, uh, you know, MRI, CT, any medical equipment in the hospital. We help manage the life cycle, the criticality, the PMs, um, bringing that equipment in the hospital, setting it up with IT. There's a lot of uh, security requirements within the VA because, you know, the VA basically has everyone's social security number. And so we need to make Hmm. sure that 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 information is protected. And so the VA has probably, I would say, a lot better, if not the best cybersecurity out of hospitals. Because uh, most hospitals, I think, don't even have port security. Where the VA's got port securities, we got ACLs, we're locking down everything on our network. So if something does get infected, it doesn't affect infect everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a big part of our job as well. And then the other other aspect I would say is the maintenance portion, where in the biomed shop, there's usually a couple engineers who are managing projects, recalls, contracting, things like that. And then there's maintenance, which is also under the biomed shop, which is basically performed by all your biomed techs. Some of the engineers, we help out on certain things, uh, but we're mostly in charge of, you know, monitoring the criticality of equipment. We do a risk assessment saying, this piece of equipment, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. If it breaks, it doesn't need an annual PM because it's not life-threatening. It's not an anesthesia machine. It's not radiology equipment. It's not uh, in an infusion pump that's delivering medication. It has to be precise. So it doesn't receive annual maintenance. However, if it breaks, we're still going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the stuff that needs annual maintenance, which would be 
Um, yeah, basically all those things I risk listed that are high risk, that are life sustaining, that we need to make sure are functioning at all times. Um, and like, like right now with COVID-19, uh, one of the big things is ventilators. You know, you got to make sure all your ventilators are up and running at all times in case there's, you know, a surge of COVID-19 patients. We need to make sure none of our ventilators are, are down or anything like that. For sure. Yeah. And did you guys get, so, uh, additional ventilators into your specific hospital in Pittsburgh or did you, uh, or do you just have so, a certain amount that you've had? I believe we had like around 36 in our inventory, but I, we were planning on actually replacing our vents, um, in the upcoming year. And with this COVID thing happening, I think we got a contract awarded to actually replace those vents earlier. Um, so that was yeah. good news. But then also VA Pittsburgh, we um, weren't, uh, I guess, af affected that much. And so we actually loaned out some of our vents to help other facilities that needed help right away. So that was cool that we could do that. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I don't know. It's it, it's there's a lot we're doing as biomed engineers. It's hard to, you know, like list out everything, but that's how I'd break it up into two categories, basically project management and then maintenance is the other category. And then there's like some stuff that's kind of in between like recalls, you know, if the FDA releases a recall that will get sent to the hospitals and then the hospitals will forward it to us. And then we'll communicate with the service lines, get that piece of equipment out of service, correct that, um, and then put it back in service, you know, try to because it's basically we want to have the best patient safety that we can, essentially. Yeah, that makes sense. So, what is your what does your day to day look like? Like, what would be a a normal day for for Jake Frankenfield at the the VA? Man, normal day, average. Normal. Think, think average. three months ago before COVID happened. What's a what's an aspiring biomed to look forward to if they're if they're looking to get into VA? All right, aspiring biomed looking to work in the VA. You know, you'd come in, and then, uh, well, I'd, I guess I would say in the morning you might have a shop meeting, you know, go over everything that happened the day before, anything that needs to be addressed in morning meeting, because uh, usually most hospitals have a morning meeting where usually the chief of biomed will attend, report on, you know, anything that may have happened over the evening, if there's anything that needs to be brought to light, um, which most, I guess, the the staff engineers probably wouldn't go to morning meeting. That would be more the chief of biomed. Um, so I would come in and I would start either working on recalls that I need to get corrected by a certain timeline because there's always there's three actions usually with the recall, you know, address, tell your users that an item's affected, remediate that recall and then document all your work so you could be working on recalls you could do inventory management which would be like planning life cycle management looking over your inventory saying hey this we need to start thinking about replacing this for your upcoming fiscal year because with each replacement there's different cutoffs to contracting so if it's over five hundred thousand there's going to be a different contracting date or if it's between 50 and 250, there's a different contracting date. And then if it's like high cost, high tech equipment, which is over a hundred thousand, and then there's over a million high cost, high tech, 
the, there's different cutoff dates for all these price cutoffs, basically for equipment. So you could be working on that, or you could be contracts, because each quarter you're going to have different contracts that have to be met um, or rewritten for service contracts for everything that you have on service that your biomed techs don't service. That so that goes out to a third party or goes back to the OEM, um, and that you do that for a reason of a risk analysis, like. Our MRI, well, if we don't have a biomed tech trained on it, we want to go to the OEM to ensure that they have the best uptime service guarantee, you know, maintaining that equipment as best we can. So as biomed engineers, you'd be managing that contract. So for quarter one, we might have seven contracts, and those contracts have to be submitted to contracting at least, uh, I think it's 30 days before the previous contract ends. So there's a lot of stuff you got to make sure you're maintaining on timelines. So you could be working on contracting. And then probably somewhere in your day, you're going to go to some meetings, a lot of meetings. I'm just going to throw that out there. seems like we have a lot of meetings about everything. You got to meet to get work done. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a reality of the um, American marketplace, really, is there are, there are a lot of meetings. And some of them are impromptu and super productive, and some of them are scheduled and very unproductive, um, and vice versa. Exactly. But there, there are a lot of meetings. That's, I think that's a large portion of being I'm a professional. I, I mean, we're both engineers, and so we kind of have a similar experience in what we've done. But meetings are just a requirement. That's something you have to do. Yeah. Uh, both of us have had to do it. Neither of us yeah, like so, it. <laughs> so... Some of the important meetings that you'll go to, there's CPRC committee meeting, which is equipment approval meeting, which that's an important meeting. There's EOC rounds, which is environment of care rounds, where they're usually done once or twice a week, where you go around, uh, pick a floor of the hospital or an area, and you're looking for, there's several people in this meeting. There's FM, um, facilities management, there's engineering, there's probably security, there's privacy, there's records management, there's EMS, there's biomed, uh, and there's quality and patient safety. And we, we uh, pick what's a floor. EMS is emergency medical? Yeah, e, uh, no, EM, uh, it might be environmental management services. It's a cleaning okay. crew. Basically. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and so we pick like the first floor and everyone goes around the first floor looking um, at things that need to be corrected. So as biomed, you're going around looking at all medical equipment, making sure if it does meet your risk assessment and need an annual PM that the, the preventative maintenance sticker is up to date. If not, you document that, you get that corrected as soon as possible. Um, so that's probably one of the meetings you're going to go to. Um, another meeting probably you might be on some task force uh, for something, you know, like, uh, I don't even, I'm, I'm trying to think of a task force I was on. We're, we did a, I was on a task force uh, for a turn-in improvement process. And so you could be thrown on a variety of different meetings. Um, I'm trying to think. Another thing you'll probably be working on, uh, if you did recalls, you did contracting, yeah, you'd probably be doing running some sort of project at the time where it's a new install, um, where one of the projects we're running right now is a cable deinstallation process because 
uh, a vendor came in, installed their equipment, but they never removed the old cables. And so we had to hire a contractor to come in to remove all these cables that are in the ceiling because it's in violation of fire safety code, Yeah. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> well, if everybody did that, you, I mean, it would just be a bird's nest up there. You couldn't, you couldn't Which, have every time it, equipment being replaced, new cables being routed and old ones left there. It, yeah, exactly. And so it does become a problem. And so I know that's going on right now. Um, and then you might be doing some internal stuff, just cleaning up your own inventory or uh, looking over. the. In uh, another thing we do is uh, inventory uh, name management because – how the how a recall works is the FDA says this device um, infusion pump uh, model 2.3 is uh, affected. But if every VA hospital in their equipment record had it labeled as something else, infusion pump one, infusion pump 45, then no one would know that they were infected. And yeah, so that's, that's not good. <laughs> exactly. So there's a standard, a naming standard that is, comes down from up above <laughs> that we are given the Lord Almighty have... or just a little lower than that. <laughs> it's a little lower than that. So we, we have to ensure that that naming standard meets whatever our equipment is. And there's a, they pull our inventory and say you're at 97%. And so you have to go and make those corrections. Um, usually probably on a monthly basis, I would say not, not every day, but that's another thing that you're in charge of. Um, trying to think. I mean, that's probably a good, I'd say probably a good breakdown of what you're doing. The reason I like this job more than I like medical device design is because medical device design, you're at a computer and you're running SolidWorks or AutoCAD or some 3D modeling software for basically... Mm -hmm six hours out of your eight hour day. Cause you might have some meetings. You might have a lunch break. You might have, you might have a lunch break. Depends <laughs> how. Yeah. But then you're, you're just doing solid works the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't enjoy that with this job. Yeah. There's probably a good portion where I'm at my desk doing different things where I have to be on the computer, but there's a good portion where I'm walking around the hospital where I'm looking, you know, doing projects here, planning this, uh, you get a lot of face-to-face -face with your end users. Like I talk to nursing staff, I talk to doctors, um, and I like that relationship. I feel like I'm not just glued to my desk in my cubicle, not seeing anyone else every day. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. the big reason I like this job more than I liked my previous co-op experience. Mm -hmm. But um, a few more, I got a few more questions for you. Do you are you suit and tie or are you scrubs to work at the the old uh, VA? I am dress pants Ooh. and a button-up shirt. Okay, looking uh, good. Looking sharp. Yes. Yeah, sometimes I'll wear a tie. Ooh. Most of the time I don't wear a tie. <laughs> Who and, would? If they have the option, that makes sense. Well, so like my supervisor, well, there's our shop supervisor. He usually wears button-up khakis and a tie. And then there's our chief of biomed who wears a, a suit every day. All day. Two button day. or three button. It's important. I think he's. I don't know, two button. I don't know. Jay, come on, man. You got to keep this stuff. You got to look at this stuff. Um, it's okay. I'm not. I'm never gonna tell him about this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Oh yeah, I got you. Got to keep this on the DL from the, yeah. the people we, the people I care about. Not telling. <laughs> exactly. No, this is this is embarrassing for both of us. I know, I know that, but it's it's fun. I enjoy it already. Um, and no, what I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> Um, as as a as a biomed, like in in your position, is that is a four year degree required? You have a four year degree in biomedical engineering, um, with no experience. You got that job. I know that. Um, but what what all would be required to to attain the job you have? So yeah, that's another good question. Uh, the VA has very strict guidelines for all of their positions, and that comes down from uh, it's another acronym OPM. Office of Personal Management, I think. Um, And then there's HR also somewhere gets involved there. And they come up with um, what they call KSAs, Knowledge, Skills, and Abilities. And then there's an education requirement as well. And so a a biomed engineer has to have a four-year engineering degree from an ABET-accredited engineering school. Those sons of guns, ABET man, just made that up, and then now they're rich and famous. Like, oh yeah, well, ABET, what what's that? Nobody cares, nobody knows, but everyone wants it. <laughs> well, if a podcast doesn't work, maybe we can start a standardization for something. <laughs> yeah, a CBET accrediting, if you will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Podcast accreditation. <laughs> um. Yes, if, is your podcast for real? Have Jake and Cole <laughs> exactly. approved? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so they a four-year engineering degree from ABET accredited school. Now, I'm pretty sure it doesn't have to be a biomed engineering degree. I think they just okay. say engineering. However, I do believe that like biomed is the preference because um, they want you to know, have some idea of medical devices, how they relate to the human body. Um, a, some networking stuff, digital electronic stuff, but it's mostly kind of engineering, you know. So yeah, that's, if I would have taken a couple a, anatomy courses, I probably could have. Yeah, it. you, yeah, you definitely could have made it. Um, so that's the education requirement, and then how they, how the VA hires, there's a grade category. So an engineer could be a grade seven, a grade nine, a grade eleven, and a grade twelve. And this grade scale is called the general schedule, GS, general schedule pay scale. And that's based on your KSAs, your knowledge, skills, and abilities. So if oh, you're a seven. They rate your knowledge, yeah, skills, and abilities. That, that feels exactly. a little too personal. It feels a little close <laughs> to home. And let me tell you, they're always going to rank them low. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so if you if you... If they, if they look at your basically your resume and you're a biomed engineer, you meet that requirement and you have no previous experience, um, you're going to come in as a GS7 level one. Now, if you have uh, basically a mid-level experience, I forget what the KSAs for the nine are, but it's like know about medical device, recall management, something else, something else, then you can come in as a nine. And then... There, you can come in as 11 if you meet all these requirements. Um, however, oh, and that's the other thing with the KSAs. You have to like meet these requirements or have a previous year at the lower grade level. 
So, like, so you don't actually you... have to know anything. If you've put in time, you can they can pretend you know stuff. Yeah, right. Like, for example, if I, at my next review, after I've been a seven for a year, I'll almost automatically get bumped to a nine, regardless of how much I know. However, they could hold me back, but that's probably not going to happen. And so the, you're, you have your KSA ranking. Basically, you know everything. You're going to be put in as an 11. And then after a year of experience at 11, you can move up to a 12. And that's classified as a biomed's full performance level. And that oh. means you will okay. you can't go to a higher grade, but you can go to a different step in your grade. And there's 10 steps in a grade, which is like maybe a two and a half or three percent pay increase with each step it's something like that okay so there's pretty good range at the at the at each uh grade right but for the all right for everyone listening if you come in to va and you want to work as a biomed engineer and you just come out of college you're going to start at a grade seven which is going to be a lot lower pay than what a typical engineer should make I'd say typical engineering coming out of school, I think you should make in the 60s. That's what I'll say. Where this is you're making, let's say, in the 40s. <laughs> just, let's just say that. <laughs> let's just say not quite the 60s. No, that makes sense. Yeah. But, but I think I think there are some – some of the blessings of, of the VA job is – is your job secure? You're working for Uncle Sam. Your paycheck's secure. The VA's not going belly up. You know there there are some benefits no. to working for the government for sure. No, yeah, and I mean that's definitely one of the selling points. Is all right, you get hired. It's going to be really hard for you to get fired. Um, you have what they call the TSP plan, which is basically the government's version of a 401k where they'll match you 5%, which I think is better than most private companies. They offer that in Roth and traditional uh, for you. Uh, yeah, for you accounting people. Or, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's accounting. Um, let me think. Oh, and then your, uh, your leave. You get four hours of sick leave and four hours of annual leave every pay period. So I think that's 13 out or 13 days of leave sick and annual uh, for one year. And that's from zero to three years of service. After that, it bumps up to you accumulate six uh, hours of annual and f four hours of sick leave. And then at some point you accumulate one day of leave per pay period. Yeah, I think it's after like, 10 years of service, you get one day of leave per pay period. Is your pay period two or four weeks? It's two weeks. And then also okay. that, that annual leave, you can accumulate up to 240 hours. So it'll roll over each year until you hit 240 hours. And the sick leave never stops accumulating. So you can just 2,000 hours of sick leave, which I know people have got that much. And then when they retire – that sick leave will be um, basically credited back to them in years of service for their basically their pension plan. Because another benefit of the government, you're enrolled in a pension. So is that um, so? That's one to one. So say like just for example, you work 20 years, you have the equivalent of one year of sick leave, 
they would just say you work 21 years and give you a payout for your one year of sick leave? Uh, yes. So, well, they want to give you a straight payout. Your annual leave, I believe they'll straight pay you out at retirement. So if you had 240 hours of annual leave at retirement, they're going to give you a check for 240 hours at your rate of pay. Okay. Sick leave, if you have 2,000 hours, it'll be credited. So if you work 20 years, it'll be credited to you as 21 years, but that factors into your pension as your three highest uh, salary years, the average mm -hmm. of that times roughly 1.1%, I think, times the number of years of service. And so that's how it's lumped in there in the number of years of service. Okay. Yeah. You got any other questions for me? Oh, uh, what's your favorite and your least favorite part of your job? Yeah, so I would say favorite part of this job is I can go anywhere in the hospital. I get to interact with doctors, nurses. Um, I get to see what I'm doing and how it directly um, affects patient care and veterans and how it helps veterans. Um, and then I, I do like working for the VA and the mission uh, that the VA has of serving those who basically first served our country. I think that's a really important mission. And I like I, I do find pride in that, that we're we're serving those that served us. Least favorite part of the job, I'm going to say Me. is how long. No, <laughs> is how long everything takes in oh. um, the government. There's a lot of rules to do anything, and some of those rules I understand that they're trying to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse. They're trying to save taxpayer dollars. However, in this process of rules, the outside world figures ways around those rules. And so it ends up costing us, I would say, the same amount of money but takes the government twice as long to do anything that it would a normal company to do. Um, yeah. And I would say that's almost the most frustrating part for me. It's like, Oh, I want to buy something because we need it. Well, that's going to take a long time. I can't just be like, Oh, our staff likes this. We want this. It doesn't work that way. You know? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really frustrating to go through. I'd see that. Yeah. Well, that's a good summary. That, that's a good summary. Mm -hmm. What a what a biomed does. I, I mean, I, I hope I so. Learned some stuff that I hadn't known about even in previous conversations, and so that's that's pretty cool. I think I'll yeah. jump into her. Then we'll have a little longer than usual podcast, probably. Um, yeah, probably. I don't know what usual is yet, but we'll we'll make it happen, huh? No, we're only at forty two minutes. You know, Joe Rogan's going for. Joe Rogan's going for three, you know. Just straight three hours. He's got a lot more interesting yeah. guests than you and me, though. But be honest. He had Tony <laughs> Hawk on today. <laughs> I know. I watched that, and it was pretty interesting. Was it? I haven't watched it yet, but I probably will. Well, Tony, oh, so Tony Hawk was 14 when he went professional. And he was like the then... first pro skater. Like, he was, he was the pioneer of skating. No, yeah, he said, like, when he went professional, it wasn't a big deal. There was, like, a form that said pro, and he checked yes, and that was <laughs> it. <laughs> and then he said he bought his first house when he was 17 years old, still in high school. Dude, I should have been skating. 
what have I been doing? Going to engineering school, man. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right, we'll jump into it. Okay, so I, I mean, I shared a little bit about my history. I graduated with a engineering degree, mechanical engineering degree, and I had interned at a power power company or a utility company more uh, here in Arizona called the Salt River Project. I worked at one of their power plants that was close to my house um, between my junior and senior year. And so I had uh, a good experience out there. I really enjoyed it. Um, similar to Jake, I I don't enjoy the screens all day. I really probably enjoy a 50-50 or maybe like a 40-60 where I'm up and walking around 40% of the time and at the computer about 60% of the time, let's say. And I had that opportunity at the power plant. They let me follow engineers around all the time. Hey, you want to go see this? Hey, you want to go see this? I mean, I crawled through every part of a power plant that a person can go in, I'm pretty sure. I, I, I legitimately can say I think I've been most places that any of the engineers out there go because uh, they, they really take care of their interns at Salt River Project, and so they were, they were trying to give me a good experience, and so I got to do everything the engineers did, not just what one engineer got to do. And so that was, that was uh, a huge opportunity, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And so that inspired me to pursue a career with um, SRP, and I got into a rotational engineering program. And so for the next two years, or I guess one and a half years now more, I will do four different rotations throughout the company um, in different departments. And then after that, I will have some opportunity to decide where I go, depending on openings in the company. And if there are no openings, I'll just get assigned to... Not, I wouldn't say a random. That would that would sound incorrect. But I will get assigned to an apartment <laughs> rather than rather than uh, what they call bidding out, where you you go through uh, somewhat of an application process. I think uh, it's a little bit less formal than a true application, where you've probably met the manager. It's likely you've worked for the manager, and so your interview is kind of over. Your interview is kind of every single day, um, which is really cool. And so yeah. right now I'm in uh, a group called the, the Power Generation Services is the overall group I'm in. They, they're they kind of a corporate um, entity that that helps each individual power plant run because our company is delivering power and water both to um, a, a sig- uh, significant, might be an overstatement, a portion of Arizona. We're, we're a company that, okay. that services Arizona. And so we deliver a significant amount of water and a lot of power to both residential and commercial customers. And so we have our own power plants, distribution lines, and the whole nine yards. And so um, that department, the Power Generation Services, um, helps maintain and run those power plants as well as um, does projects for the power plants that they, they are unable to do or just uh, don't, don't really fit where you need one whole person, uh, to like a person per power plant to do it like two or three people could do it for all the power plants, let's say. Well, our company is going to make the wise decision, bring that to to a corporate location, and that's what they're going to do. And so similarly, that's what my department in that group, the Performance Monitoring Center, that's what we do. There's uh, four or five of us, four and a supervisor in there. Or I guess there's four full-time employees, me and a supervisor. And we're looking (laughs) at uh, essentially live data. Um, but a bird's eye view of the power plants. The the power plants okay. have control rooms that have people looking at continuous data, one minute, 30 second, 10 second data. 
hey, what what are the vibe readings on certain machines? How hot stuff? What what's going on in the power plant? Because they're pretty expensive. They're you know they're multi million dollar machines essentially, <laughs> or <laughs> engines, or um, in the in the natural gas sense, it's a turbine. It's I mean it's just like a jet yeah. engine sitting there. You don't you don't want stuff to go wrong. Uh, and so they're looking at the fine details, and then our job is to look at um, the larger details. Like every ten minutes, we get a snapshot. And we look at trends over days, not minutes. So it's okay. Hey, the the vibrating or whatever hasn't gotten to a point where the the vibrations would be out of out of range for the the operators. They're they're looking at one minute data. Like, hey, this is a problem now. But we can look at it and say, hey, it's normally been operating at whatever whatever it's been operating at, and it's slowly trending upwards. And so we can catch that and possibly save the power plants. Um, catastrophic failures by looking at these these trends so these so the trends you're looking at can they be used for real-time adjustment or is it like two days later we can make adjustment um yes and no so if we see an error we um immediately send an email to the power plants to whoever's controlling and running that power plant and they can look into it immediately but oftentimes it's two days in the past where we have where we've learned the data, if that makes sense. So we have um, gotcha. a neural network, yeah. and so we have a bunch of input data over here that gets cycled down to a trend line, and then we have a bunch of output data. And so it's like, what should we have? What do we have? And when we see deviations in that is something to look at. Our bounds on alarms are a lot closer, so the, the engineers come in in the morning, see the the difference or the alarms they have and then analyze, okay, that's nothing. That's noise. They were in startup. There was some weird condition that makes that that doesn't matter. Um, And then if, if it's something that they think is common, let's say a startup or a change in change in load, they could train that into the model. They could say, Hey, this is good data. So when, when these conditions are happening, don't throw me an alert. Like this is, this is real. And so they can, they can adapt the model in that way. Uh, but oftentimes the power plants do take immediate action. Send them an email and they say, hey, we'll look into it. Sometimes it's like, oh, that was just a broken sensor or, or whatever. Or it's, hey, right. yeah, we we see that. We'll keep monitoring it and look for a more opportune time to replace it because there's a, there's a chance that if we catch something, a power plant's not going to want to come down. They're not going to want to stop making power, stop making money at that time. That costs us costs us uh, money to do as well as like D rates. If you can't meet what load we're supposed to meet. Oh, and yeah. so they'll say, okay, but we could push our next outage in a- another day to fit this in or, or whatever the case may be uh, to just make the most informed decision they can. And so that's, that's what my group does. Um, mainly what I do is a little different because I'm a, I'm a temporary employee essentially in that group. I've been kind of assigned uh, extra projects or stuff, extra projects, I guess is the best way to say it, that make those those analyst jobs easier. And so I've been doing a ton of coding in Python to look at month data um, for heat rate, which is essentially the the efficiency of a power plant. How much power are we making and how much energy is in the fuel we're, we're putting into a power plant. And so okay. if we can start analyzing that over a couple years and you start to see a trend upward, we can start looking, hey, what's what's going on? Why is this power plant getting less efficient? Um, if we try something, we can say, hey, it's been more efficient. And so I've been working on a huge Python script. 
Uh, it's kind of just a one one thing. I've only been doing it since January, and so I haven't had a, a ton of opportunities to do different projects. But I've been I've been coding this thing that that analyzes the heat rate of 32 power plants every single month. Uh, That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's it's getting huge. So the project started with literally they just wanted heat rates, and then after that it was what they wanted what they call service factor, which is how long a power plant was up and running. So it's like total yeah. minutes in a month time or t- total minutes that the power plant was running divided by total minutes in a month. Okay. And huh. af- after that, we have what they call dispatch curves, which are uh, essentially just like a graph of what the power plant should do in certain conditions and so and what the heat rate should be. And so like, hey, if you're at 100 megawatts with whatever if you're at 100 megawatts your heat rate should be this and so then now i put that into my program calculate percent air from that um i also do a capacity factor calculation which is uh, um capacity factor is the max output for the power plant and it's how close you are to that over the course of a month because a power plant is designed to run most efficiently at the capacity factor so if you have a high capacity factor and a high heat rate that would be a sign that something's wrong in your power plant. Right. Whereas if you right. have a low capacity factor and a high heat rate, that that is somewhat expected because you're not running where you're designed to run. Yeah. So everything you're doing is like, what can we do to ensure optimal efficiency and productivity? Basically, performance, if you will. We're in the Perform- performance, yeah, monitor. performance. We're, we're monitoring yeah. the performance. We really are. Wow. It's yeah. crazy how they named that. <laughs> yeah, they they did do an effective job naming that because yeah, I mean scents scents make a difference when you just run twenty four hours a day. For example, these are getting phased out and they're not super popular anymore. But like a coal power plant is online three hundred days a year, three hundred and twenty. Like I mean, like they're they are only offline, not running for a couple days a year. And so if you can make yeah. small adjustments, that's huge savings for the company. And so it's a very valuable uh, asset to the company yeah. as a whole. So, I don't know. This is – I got a lot of questions. I don't know okay. if these might be specific. First off, the power plant, is this a privately owned, government-owned? Because I know the government's got ties and, you know, oh, how, yeah. where the power comes from. So that's a very uh, good question. Good question. So we are a nonprofit organization. So just a, a really brief history that will help kind of clarify the issue. Uh, Phoenix, Arizona, it was originally farmland. Uh, it's hard to believe it's a huge metropolitan area now, but it's farmland. A lot of citrus, a lot well, of they... cotton. <laughs> citrus and cotton, like man. And oranges, lemons, limes. Those are all citrus, correct. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I yeah. was just, I didn't know. Yeah, grapefruits. I think largely oranges and, and lemons probably, like, because those are the, I mean, you use the most of those. Um, you know, people love orange juice, limeade. I eat a lot of pineapple, so. I don't think they grew pineapple. Um, but in any case, there was a, a group of farmers who were like, hey, we need some water. And they negotiated, they put their farms up as collateral and built the Roosevelt Dam. Uh and and they started uh, doing irrigation channels. That's how SRP got its start, was all water, distributing water to the farmers huh. before power was a thing. Like, they put, like, a little hydro 
on the dam, like a hydroelectric plant or whatever, and sold some power to the mines, but really nothing serious until the farmers wanted power. And the other power company in Arizona, Arizona Power Service, APS, were like, yeah, we don't really want to give you guys power. Uh, they're just like, hey, we're doing the downtown area. That's who needs power. We don't want to run a bunch of power poles out to the, the farmers in the middle of nowhere. SRP uh -huh. said, hey, we'll negotiate and take that territory from you. And it was expensive power to give, right? I mean, they were in the middle of nowhere, one customer on a bunch of land. You had to take poles to their right. house and give them power. And so we did that because we were in it for the farmers. We're nonprofit. We're just here for the people. And, oh, and uh, now Phoenix is huge, and yeah, you're making and a so, ton of money. <laughs> yeah, and so Phoenix blew up, and now for every farmhouse we took power to, uh, who knows how many houses are in that same same area where there's wow. one house. And well, so we're still a good nonprofit. Deal. We're still closely tied with the government. Um, the government regulates mm -hmm. electrical prices in Arizona. Um, because, getting back to your original question, we own all the way from the power plant to the house. Um, okay. Like, we we own every, I mean, essentially it's called generation and distribution are the two, the two terms used. And in a place that has, like, deregulated distribution, like Texas, is a little different. People, like, you, you, I don't really understand how it happens because like you have a private entity generating electricity and then you have somebody else who's selling that and then you can choose who you buy electricity from as the consumer, which drives prices down, but it also hurts reliability oh. um, because we're, we can see all our load. We know what our customers are doing. And so we have a little bit more control over, uh, in just oversight over the reliability, which, which is really good for our customers. Um, but some people say that it's better to have lower prices and they're talking about deregulating it in Arizona, which would be interesting, but I don't think would impact SRP too much. I think they would probably just split into two different companies, but I don't know. As I say, it's really interesting. It makes me wonder what, what I am here in Pennsylvania. I, did, I never even thought about that. Did you have a choice? Uh, I don't think so. I think. The electric to my house was Duquesne light. Like that's all I could go through. Mm -hmm. Then, then it's probably not deregulated. So, like in Texas, like our friends in Texas, they get like just like internet. Do you want to buy from Bill, Joe, uh, or Tom? And you, like it's Chuck. literally just like internet. <laughs> you know, you you have the option to select who you'd like for your huh. for your internet or for not for your internet. It's like your internet. It's for your electricity. It's very interesting. Never thought about that. Yeah, it's deregulated. Okay. The Wild West. The Wild West of Internet service. All right, electrical. so. Yeah. Electrical, not Internet. Um, in your performance monitoring, like, are there people there 24-7? Like, are they there overnight? Or is that monitoring happening, like, at the station where they're there 24-7? So, at the station is 24-7. I believe there are people in my building that are, that are trading power because you can also just buy and sell power as a commodity. So I think they're 24 seven <laughs> and then the power plants are 24 seven. They're, they're doing that. But since we're a bird's eye uh, kind of view, we're only there nine to five or whatever. I guess it's, nine, nine we're, we actually get in at six and leave at three thirty. but there's somebody there oh. five days a week in our department. Look at you six to three thirty. Well, so I work khakis. 
Suit? No. no. I wear jeans. No? Oh, so, wow. So the culture at SRP is a little bit more laid back because of its grassroots, I guess I could say. But, like, at the power plant, all the engineers are crawling around in, like, the coal silo. So you, you get dirty on a pretty regular basis. And so it's, it's yeah. I think the term they use is, like, industrial site. And so it's steel toes a lot of times. Like, I'm required to have steel toes for work, hard hat, gla- safety glasses. Like, those yeah. live in my truck. And it's, like, on any given day, it could be like, oh, we're going out to a power plant, and I better have steel toes, hard hat, and safety glasses. Um, gotcha. Sometimes the steel toes are are not necessary. Like, hard hat and safety glasses are pretty much always necessary at power plants. But a lot of times on tours, steel toes aren't necessary because they know there's no work going on around you. And that's when yep. when drops you know, drops on your toes can happen. It's it's and so those are sometimes not necessary, but definitely are necessary at times. Okay, gotcha. And so it's it's uh, uh it's jeans, and then we all wear short sleeves because it's Phoenix and it's 110 degrees. So you, I wear a golf shirt, you know, a a, a polo or whatever. You, as I say, you put on sunscreen heading to work. Wear sunglasses, you know. Some people do. I I bad. like that golden Some glow. Oh yeah. Sun-kissed is, I believe, what yes. they call it. Yes, I believe that is the correct term. <laughs> um, so what is uh, SRP's education requirement? Like, I know we both have four-year engineering degrees, but is it like four years, a bet, you know, credited? Mechanical? You know, has to be mechanical? Or so what they, do we got? There's a lot of different – there's a couple different answers to that question. The first is, in the Performance Monitoring Center, engineering degree is not required. Um, we just had somebody – somebody we had a retirement in my department right before COVID or during COVID. And so I don't – I'm not very familiar with his replacement yet. His name's Mike, but I've never met him, never shook his hand. And so I don't really I, – I don't know what degrees he has. But I know the okay. man that retired was a was just a senior analyst, and so he had worked his way up through the company, very familiar with the power plants, very familiar with the transmission lines, and so he was qualified to do that job, as well as there are three degree mechanical engineers in the room other than me. And so engineering okay. qualifies you, as well as um, just experience could qualify you for the current job I'm in. Okay. But then, then once you get into those other ones, you're going to have to have an engineering degree. Yep. So for the yeah. the rotator program is they have a business business rotator program, computer science rotator program, and an engineering rotator program. And the engineering okay. is ABAT accredited, normal four year degree. But it's pretty much any discipline. Okay. Um, it's interesting because they have to. Yeah. Well. Yeah. No, <laughs> there's no biomass. They have to predict kind of the future predict the future a little bit because they're hiring you, but they're not really assuming you're going to do anything for two years. Like if a company needs a civil engineer now, a rotator doesn't really fit that bill because they're going to be there six months to go somewhere else six months. And so they're a little bit looking into the future in two years. What are we going to need? That's what we need to hire now. Uh, gotcha. so, so that's a tough yeah, job. So they're, they're training you in these four different areas hoping that at the end of those years, they're going to have a position for you somewhere around. Yep. Yeah. And there are exceptions. So they, they largely hire civil electrical. Uh, They have a lot of chemical because you're dealing with superheated water, which I guess superheated steam. And that can become very corrosive if there's anything in it. Um, So 
like the chemistry of the waters at power plants as well as the gases and stuff is, is very important. And so chemical engineers, mechanical engineers, um, I think you could probably get in with an industrial, uh, industrial engineering degree uh, or structural, structural engineering they, they would hire. Uh, but you'd largely civil and electrical because we do a lot with water. We do a lot with power. So makes sense. Uh, that's what they were looking for. Electricity. Yeah. Connecting the dots here. Yeah. Okay. Yep. They were they were looking for that, but I, I snuck my way in. I was uh, like, hey, but look at me. Like a snake <laughs> just yeah. sliding in there. Yep. Okay. Slid in the DMs a little bit. And so <laughs> and so there are a few mechanicals in the like it's almost like a school, right? Because you have four you have four rotations, so there's like your, your class of rotators or your kind of your friends. And so there's like different levels, you know, like a little bit of a seniority thing. And so in the like rotator program right now, there are other, excuse me, there are other mechanicals. Okay. Gotcha. So if I was listening to this wonderful podcast, I would want to know real talk. What are they paying you? <laughs> oh, so, so I, I landed my dream job. I really did. There's no, there's no question. I wanted this job. I wanted it bad uh, because some of the um, some of the benefits of the government I see, and some of the private some of the advantage of the private sector I see. We're, we're a nonprofit. <laughs> we're doing pretty good, and so uh, my pay yeah. my pay is pretty good. Like, Price I'm, range, yeah. Let's give a range. I'm above the sixty number. I'm I'm like I'm ah, and so I'm I'm upper sixties, but then. Uh, through the Rotator 1 program, I would say, like, forecasting out, I would stay under 80 on, in Engineering 1, I think, uh, if that okay. makes sense. And then as you Damn. get promoted to, like, Senior Engineer after a couple years, three years, you can start going. Similarly to your company, they have each job has a grade associated with it. And then within that grade, depending on experience or whatever the knowledge you have, as the government likes to say, you'll get It's paid. called time. Yeah. It's... A, it's it's largely time, uh, but it, it, it is, it's a high paying job. And then also the benefits are great. It still has a pension, has a 401k with, uh, nine, it's a 90% match up to 6%. And so essentially if you do the okay. max match, you're putting in 6%, they're putting in like 5.2 or something. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, it's real good. And then same thing, Roth or traditional 401k. Uh, good medical, dental, vision, the whole nine yards. And so it's it's a really good job. What's your vested period? Um, I don't know. I'm going to be honest. I think I think for 401k, you're immediately vested. Um, okay. Actually, I think I'm immediately vested. It might be like a year or something, but it is not – like it's not something to worry about. Like if I work there five okay. years, I'll still get a super small, but I will get a pension check. Um, yeah, they, they don't match you for a year on your 401k. That's why I think you can be immediately vested because any money I've put in my 401k until I've completed a year of service is my money. And then after a year, they'll start Uh, matching. Yeah, that probably makes sense. Okay. And so you can take advantage of a 401k that, I mean, not right now could be, it could be growing, you know? And so you could take advantage of that, but it's not, they're not going to lose that much if you just transfer it or. Or take it out if you if you quit within a year or whatever. Okay, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so I guess in the current job you're in, not the 
not like the other three positions, but the one you're in now, what is, I guess, your the best part of that job? Most favorite part? I'll get. I'll probably answer two times from that. So, so going to the power plants is the most fun. Like, okay, it's it's so fun. Like you get to tour. It's I'm a I'm a kid in a candy store to a certain extent. I mean, it, it's still work. I mean, there's things you have right. to do with those power plants and do safety inspections and stuff. But you're seeing just like years and years of like one engineering and two just smart people. Like there was just smart people involved. They're like, hey. Who dreamt up, like, they're just insane. The size, the, like, hey, let's pipe the gases over here and take some heat out. And, like, there's a little bit of danger. Like, there's a steam pipe that if it blew up, you just disintegrate. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's kind of cool to be around that much just size and stuff. And so I get to do that some with my current job. And then also in the rotator program, I get to do tours um, for, like, days of learning and stuff. It would be like, hey, go out to a power plant, see what's going on. And so I do that some for my current job and then as well as the program. And then like kind of the more traditional, like what I do for work that I enjoy, I do enjoy coding. So I'm, I'm doing quite a bit of Python. It's not, I mean, I'm not getting up and walking around. It is all computer screen time, but I went in with very little Python knowledge and I'm coming out with quite a bit. Okay. Um, and so I'm getting to learn a ton, which is nice. I get to interface Python with all the data collection equipment so we have millions of data points across all our power plants and so there's a system called like pi that does all our like takes all that information in and stores it and so right i've learned a ton about how to access that information through both excel and python and that's a really valuable skill in in the company or i guess any other company that uses pi but it's it's a pretty specific like you would never learn that in school, but it's it's really good to know, and I, and so I've really enjoyed getting to know that and and do get to learn more every day. Okay, well that makes sense. Flip side of that, you know, what's the most annoying thing that you have I to could, deal with? I could almost say the same thing because I don't have a lot of change, and so that's probably the the most annoying <clears> part <throat> is I is I go in and I and I pretty much code Python all day or work in Excel. On, on data analysis. And so the days can get kind of long and just not, uh, it's not very dynamic, maybe I'll say. And so part of that is short term. You know, I think, I think the job would be a lot different if I was a full-time employee in the performance monitoring center, because I would have power plants that I was in charge of watching. I'd have meetings with those power plants every other week. And so it's a little bit like more like, Hey, what's going on at each of your power plants? You kind of have like your finger on the pulse a little bit like, Hey, this power plant is running well. This power plant is not running well, but since I'm temporary and just worked on this one project, the kind of mundane every single day doing the same thing has kind of worn on me. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So I guess I, I guess that question is, do you want to talk about the other three potential like rotations that you'll go into, or do you want to like save that for another talk? Maybe another episode. Um, I can talk about the, what could I talk about? So I don't know my three. Um, you, okay. Every, every rotation, uh, any department can put in for a rotator. Hey, we want a rotator. This is the discipline. They can request only people in their second or third or their third or fourth rotation. They can say not their fourth rotation because halfway through your fourth rotation, you can bid out into the real job. And so they can kind of uh, specify what they want. 
Um, the next one that I'm doing, hopefully, uh, we all did like a spreadsheet with our names and stuff, and so nobody else wants it, and they want Rotator, so I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm good to go. But it's um, okay. watershed management, and so you can't just, like, there's a saying they, they kind of love in the history of SRP that's whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting, and, uh, and it's because the water rights in Arizona are crazy. Like, like we bought some water rights from Colorado, and they're now realizing, like, that really sucks because some oh. of their cities can't grow because they can't even, they can't, they don't have access to water for them, and that water's coming to Arizona. And so, like, they kind of are bitter about that. And then, like, uh, Buckeye, I believe, was the biggest, the fastest-growing city, which is, like, a uh, municipality in Phoenix, the larger Phoenix area, they're like wondering if they'll be able to grow anymore because they don't have access to water. And so the water rights become extremely important. Who has water, like who's allowed to take that water, where we store it and stuff like that. And so where I'm originally from in Sholo, Arizona is kind of in the mountains of Arizona and they SRP owns the watershed up there, which is essentially all the water, the rainwater that falls we don't own the water, but we have rights to it. And so we take that into our various dam systems and river systems and then channel it out across the valley. Um, but we need to be good stewards of that resource. You know, we can't just say, hey, yeah, build a bunch more houses. Do a big water-heavy industrial something or another because we think we have the water now. We need to manage that for the long term, like hundreds of years. Like we can't just – you can't just tell a family they can – build a house somewhere and then 20 years from now it's be like, yeah, we can't give you any water. Sorry. You know, that's not, yeah, that's not ethical. Yeah. It's just not right. And so there's a whole department, uh, that's kind of on the other side of the company. SRP is kind of broken into two entities, the electric and the water. I don't know a ton about it, so I won't get into it, but the, the watershed's more on the water side, obviously. And so I'd like to right. get some experience on that. And I think it's really cool. I'll drive around a lot of Arizona you get to kind of do more hands-on stuff. Some of the past rotators have talked about like actually machining stuff in the machine shop and then taking it out and putting it in service in the field. And so not the opposite of what I do, but definitely different than what I do. And so I think it'll be a fun, fun change of scenery. Yeah, it sounds, that sounds pretty fun. A lot of hands, like, you know, more hands-on than mm-hmm. statistical analysis or analytics basically. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that so is, I guess, go ahead. Like, what were you saying? Oh, I was just going to say that's kind of an example of like definitely more like a workshop environment. Like I'll be steel toes every day, jeans, like greasy, you know, it'll be, it'll be kind of a dirty job, which man's I Man's man. Yeah. I'll be a man's man for a little while, but it, it is, uh, it is different uh, than a lot of companies or what a lot of people with engineering degrees do. Uh, and I think I met a lot of people in college that wanted to be more hands on like I don't know what I'm going to do in engineering because I can't be hands on, and that's just the right. misnomer. Like I, I, I get to go from the computer to the drill or the CNC or the whatever, make it, and then install it in the field. Most of that work is not at the computer. Most of that works hands on, but I'm making an engineer's wage. <laughs> Which, like, if we're if we're being honest, that's that's a big part of your job is what you're going to make and and the life you can provide for your family, presumably, or the life you can provide provide for yourself. And so I enjoyed the hands-on stuff, but I wanted to maybe do it a smarter way than just start manual labor outside of, out of high school. Right. Okay. So jumping onto that, 
you know, in correlation to the name of our podcast, what no one told us about <laughs> your job. I guess when you went into it, was there anything that you were like, man, I wish someone told me that I didn't didn't know going in or, or even your perception of like, all right, now I'm an engineer. I got this job. Am I do you feel like you're doing engineering work, if that makes sense? It's hard to differentiate because I the internship taught me a lot about the company. So I interned out there and that that really opened my eyes to what it was. Um, something I don't think anybody really told me is how much hands-on I could do as that type of an engineer. I didn't think okay. at a large company like that, um, just to borrow from our experiences, you know, we, your brother Shane interned at a place and they, he felt like he couldn't even touch a wrench. He had to tell somebody to pick the wrench up and twist the bolt to the right. And it's, it's the polar right. opposite of that at SRP. And I had never, never heard of that as an experience, you know, like I is my first or second weekend on the job week, I guess. Um, I think it was my second week. There was an outage at SRP. And once you've taken the safety train, like you have to do the safety training. So I was safe to do it. But it was like, cool, it's out. It's you're staying out here every day, all weekend, 12-hour shifts, and you're going wherever you want. And it was just like crawling the boiler where the fire is, crawling like the ash collection system where they get the ash out of the air, going the SCR where they get the nitrogen oxide out of the air, I think. Like I could go into these places and crawl around, and I didn't think that that was for engineers, but I was literally crawling down those things with engineers that were laying eyes on their machine. You know, they were in charge of making sure this stuff ran. And so when the opportunity right. presented itself to physically look at it, that's important to them. And so they, they, they would do that. And so I think I was definitely, my eyes were definitely opened to the amount of hands-on and not desk time that you could do at a big company. Cause I knew if I started a small company, where I was designing it and building it and selling it. Well, then obviously you're hands-on, but that's a small company. There's a lot of risk. Yeah. And so to be at a large company where I can also do that stuff was, was definitely good. Definitely what I wanted and definitely something I didn't know about. Okay. That's, that's, that's a pretty good, pretty good answer. Hmm. Yeah. I guess it like in relation to my job, like what, no one or what I wish, um, what no one told what you. no one told me. Yeah. What no one told me about it. I like, so yeah, this job, I went in knowing, <clears throat> knowing it's all right. This is not design work. This is, this is like clinical engineering in a hospital environment. I kind of, I knew in my mind, we're going to be doing life cycle analysis, planning projects, doing this, doing like all these different things, managing recalls. I had that in my mind and I was like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to be in that hospital environment. And so I, all of that was right in my mind. And, but, and then I also knew going to work for the government, I knew it was going to be, you know, things get done a little slower. There's a li- all these burdens in the way. There's all these rules and regulations. But in my mind, I was like, oh, you know, I felt like somehow I was going to get a, like get around these. It, wouldn't, it wasn't going to be that bad. But then like getting in, it is like, yeah, there's, there's I these rules, the right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just like, come on, somebody's got to clean up, make a difference. <laughs> but it just, yeah, I wish, I wish like I really knew that in the beginning, like, Hey, it's going to be, 
you got to be patient because it takes time to actually get something done. Yeah, so I, I would say that's something I wish was reiterated to me in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess, is there anything else? Like, I feel like I didn't ask you about your job or that, that maybe I missed about mine or anything like that. I don't think so. I think, I think we both give a pretty good idea what our jobs were. I, I definitely could do another one of these in a, in six months to a year. I've only, you know, I've only been working a couple months and then really I got screwed. I mean, I, I went home in March or whatever, uh, because of COVID. Because and so of COVID. I, and so I don't know how, a traditional my work experience has been, you know, just considering like my boss is obviously dealing with this for the first time. He's never had to manage employees from home, um, working from home. And so I think that is also, I should say, contributed to the singularity of my projects because like I know there were, there were stuff on the schedule to do safety inspections and a safety uh, clearance audit. That's how we, that's our procedure for turning equipment off before people go in. Uh, my department makes in charge sense. of auditing that stuff and I was supposed to be involved in all those projects but those are all in-person projects and so they're on hold um, until the end of the year let's say well I'll I'll be out of the department by then and so that's uh, a fact it doesn't really give a ton of information but it has been an interesting time at, at my work for that no yeah I mean I definitely think we could definitely do another one for basically each one of your rotations because yeah. it's going to be a different position almost every time that will give you or give you us, the audience, hopefully a different yeah. perspective um, or each different perspective of job at the power plant that you as a mechanical engineer could do potentially. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's any a, of these jobs yeah. I could do at the end of it. Right. And that's, and that's the same thing as me as a biomed, <clears throat> usually most bigger VA hospitals like Pittsburgh is a very big facility there's several different biomeds and we're all, we all basically do the same thing. We have our own projects. We're all doing recalls. We're all doing this, but where I would draw a line of difference is like the chief of biomed. His job is, you know, more managerial. He's working with the higher level, uh, the uppity ups of the hospital. Um, (laughs) and so I think it would be good if I could ever, you know, have an interview, bring him on to let him talk about, his day-to-day, his perspective, what he actually does, because it is, I would say, a lot different than me doing the nitty-gritty hands-on work, project management, inventory management, um, you know, the, the I guess, more labor than managerial side of the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess I would say for everyone listening, hopefully, I hope that colonized perspectives provide you with a insight in what it is to be a biomed engineer at the VA. Um, and then also what it is to be a performance. An engineer as her mechanical uh, engineer. Okay. I was going to n- name performance logic. I don't know. The performance monitoring center is where is the, there is we the go. Working. Performance monitoring center. And if we didn't give you any so insights, hopefully you got to laugh at us a little bit. Yeah. And hopefully there's much more of these to come. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, thank you for tuning in.